welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Everybody knows about Rosie the Riveter, emblem of the contribution made by American women who entered the paid workforce during World War II. Well, during the Civil War, the federal government evolved from an almost all-male organization to one that employed some thousands of women. But there's no Clara the Clerk in public memory of the Civil War. Who were these women? Why did so many of them come to Washington seeking work? What happened to them after the war? What impact did they have on American society? We'll ask these and other questions to Dr. Jessica Zapparo, author of This Grand Experiment, When Women Entered the Federal Workforce in Civil War-Era Washington, D.C. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from our usual location, on the third floor of the apparently cancer-free Brewster Building here on the campus of East Carolina University, but not representing the university, not speaking for ECU or anybody else. Likewise, uh, our guest tonight speaks only for herself, as we always do. Well, happy to report that a thorough investigation of the building by uh, various uh, health inspectors, federal and state and otherwise, seems to have concluded that there's nothing to the allegation that the building is causing a lot of people to get sick over the years, that an unusual number of people have died of uh, various cancers in the last several decades. Statistically, it looks like the number is not more than usual, so uh, knocking on wood, it looks like I'm I'm relatively safe sitting here in the Brewster building. safer than going to the baseball stadium where the Pirates just had a terrible, terrible week last week. Uh, it went to Wichita, which is a bad start to begin with, and their their travel was delayed. They lost their luggage and all the team equipment didn't get 
to the city in time. They had to postpone Friday's game till Saturday. Uh, they lost three games by blowout scores. Just a depressing weekend all around. And then they lost to North Carolina State yesterday. Uh, respect to the Wolfpack for just being the better team again. Uh, hopefully we'll get the ship righted this weekend. Uh, and it's time to write things on campus because it's the end of the school year, uh, end of the academic season here in April uh, of 2023. Uh, we had the annual season-ending loud live music and activity bash on the mall, uh, the, the, the green area in the center of campus that they do every year. And it, it's, I just look at it like an old boomer and go, boy, that's really loud, but uh, it, it's not a problem. Uh, it's not for me, it's for the students. Uh, what is a problem is this semester, for the first time, uh, run into something I'm sure you've been reading about here and there, the problem of artificial intelligence coming home to roost. Uh, people have been warning what will happen when chat GPT starts writing everybody's take-home exams. I don't give take-home exams, but I did ask, as I always do, my students in the introductory uh, U.S. History survey class to write a book review of a book of their own choosing, which I, I approve so they don't pick you know, Thomas the Tank Engine or something. And the book reviews came in and I'm reading them and I'm thinking, oh, this is quite good. This is like really perfectly formatted and there's no grammar or spelling mistakes. This is like a graduate student could have written this. And that happens once in a while in an introductory history class. But after it happened the sixth time, I began to take notice. Um, and then intermittently on the software that we use here, the, the learning software, uh, which is called Canvas, uh, those of you in academia will be Canvas people or Blackboard people or uh, I don't know, Moodle, I think, was a... F there are different learning systems. Um, Canvas has a, a, an attachment where when the students turn their papers in, it checks for plagiarism. And this semester, it started checking for artificial intelligence. I'd never seen that before. So uh, I take the six papers that struck me as particularly well written, yet oddly robotic in their tone, um, and it had flagged all six of them as 100% likely to be written by AI. Now, the I, I went back to the class the next day and, and, and said, I've got a problem here. I think some people submitted the prompt to chat GPT and had their paper written for them. Uh, people strenuously denied it. The ones specifically I thought did it insisted they hadn't. And in fact, most of them were telling the truth. Actually, one admitted he, he had, and the rest said they hadn't. What they had done was use um, uh, use a, a uh, what is it called, the uh, Grammarly software, which you see advertised online all the time that helps you write better. Uh, that's Grammarly, tonight's sponsor of the show that's not paying anything, doesn't even know we exist. Uh, apparently, the problem is, what do we do now? Because it's not a, uh, it's not cheating per se to, to use software to improve your writing. If you use Microsoft Word, you can have it uh, check your spelling. And in fact, you should have it check your spelling. If you don't, you're not, not 
doing your job properly. So students check their spelling, but Microsoft Word will also tell you if you picked the wrong word, and it can also tell you, do you want to sound more professional, suggest a different word. My understanding is Grammarly, which I've never used, is like that same system on steroids. You write a sentence and it tells you, make it sound more professional, it rewrites the sentence for you. Your idea, but it's words. I'd never seen the word nuanced in a first-year book review before this year, in 19 years of assigning this. And when I saw it four times this year, I, th I thought something was up. One of the students I called in, we, we discussed it. I finally asked him, do you know what nuanced means? And he, he had no idea. Um, but he had picked it because Grammarly suggested it. So is that cheating? It's not their words. It's making students who are majors in construction management sound like second-year history graduate students, but they don't know what they're writing. So uh, I'm having them all rewrite their papers, and if they're not full of spelling mistakes and grammar mistakes, I'm going to fail them because I know they're still using a tool to write it for them. Uh, but it's a brave new world. It's not, it's not cheating like the old pay someone to write your paper cheating, but it, it's still not right. Uh, anyway, that's what's happening here at ECU. Uh, what's happening in Civil War land, uh, lots of things. Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours is getting ready to go on this hallowed ground in just a couple weeks, and we'll go again in October. Go to the website, check it out. Uh, Civil War Institute is coming up at Gettysburg College in June, uh, June 9 through 14. Go to Gettysburg College's website. Tell them you listen to Civil War Talk Radio. They'll give you a discount. And I'm just saying that because I like the program, and I'll be speaking there this year. Uh, they're not paying me. That is not a paid announcement. And you can find out what's happening on the show here at Impediments of War, www.impedimentsofwar.org. Next week, it's John Avlon, Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. The week after that, Ty Sedgley, Robert E. Lee and Me, a Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause. And then we'll go away for a week, do uh, this Hallowed Ground tour, come back and talk to Julie Holcomb in her book, Exploring the American Civil War Through 50 Historic Treasures. So a lot's coming up. Check all those things out. Uh, quick shout-out to uh, uh, Mark Dunkelman, old friend of the show, has been on many, many times, reports the good news that his project, the Citizens Advocating Memorial Preservation, CAMP, uh, up in Cattaraugus County, New York, has gotten a $10,000 grant from the county legislature to try to, to apply for the National Register of Historic Places. If a decade ago, the local legislature wanted to tear down the memorial building, Civil War Memorial, and now they're... Uh, funding to keep it on the historic register so good news there let's one last thing don't forget to donate when you're at the website uh 600 shows are behind us now if you donate 30 dollars it's only a nickel a show um if you appreciate the show if you like the show if you like to listen while you're swimming let's say using waterproof earbuds if you like exchanging bon mots with me on social media sites like CSW, if you're a former business professor who understands the concept of the free rider who lets other people pay and they just listen, uh, then it's time for you to become a recurring donor. And yes, I'm now calling out specific listeners by individual description, not by name, um, and shaking you down personally. If you don't want to be the next, donate now. 
uh, or if you do want to be the next, send me a description of yourself, and I'll describe you to uh, the Civil War Talk Radio community as our, our deadbeat of the week. Uh, everybody else, click the, click the button, donate through PayPal, and I will buy more books, more bourbon, and all will be happy. Don't deduct it in your taxes. Tonight we're talking with Jessica Zapparo, uh, author of this grand experiment when women entered the federal workforce in Civil War era Washington, D.C. Dr. Zapparo, are you there? I am. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, can I call you Jess as you've been signing your notes to me and you can call me Jerry? Would that be all right? To, That'd be uh, perfect. Well, that'll speed up the, the conversation process. I was fascinated to read your biography connected with your book here that you uh, uh, have uh, a background in both history, Ph.D., and uh, law degree. Uh, do, do I have I that do. correct? Uh, yes. Ted, I've told the listeners why I did that. Uh, I'm curious why you did that. Uh, well, I did them in the in a different order. I went to law school first, so I. Um, oh, I did too. Oh, okay, yeah. So <laughs> I I went to undergrad at James Madison University, and I wrote my master's thesis on uh, Andersonville and Elmira prison camps during the Civil War, and then mm. I kind of didn't see a route for me in history for a job, and I um, did well in the LSATs, and I got into Harvard, so I went to Harvard, and then I practiced environmental law for a few years, but I found I was. Um, not feeling fulfilled um, career-wise, and I was reading Civil War diaries for fun in my very limited time that I had. So I decided to take the leap and go back and get my PhD in history. Um, that did not, it, it was a great experience, and I'm really happy I did it. I went to Hopkins, and I'm really happy about the book, but there are not really careers for historians. Academia is a pretty bleak place right now, so... Um, <laughs> I actually haven't been, I had a visiting assistant professorship and I taught writing at Harvard for a while, but we moved to Seattle for my husband's job. So now I've been home with the kids. Wow. Much of that was literally my exact experience, uh, practicing law, <laughs> reading Civil War and thinking, uh, I, life's too short to do this. I, but I, when I, I did my doctoral work at Harvard and I worked in summers to make money at an environmental law firm in downtown Boston. Uh -huh. um, uh, uh, Goodwin Proctor and Hoare. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, that, just guessing that wasn't your firm by any chance. No, I was Latham and Watkins in San Diego. Oh, okay. So we're not in the same city. Not a problem. Um, yeah. uh, yeah, it, it, I, I totally get everything you just said, uh, and, and it was very bleak. I ended up practicing history in a museum for nine years before the teaching job came along. Uh, so it was 18 years between saying, forget this law gig, and actually starting to teach. Uh, so listeners, if you're thinking about doing this, that sounds easy. It's 18 yeah. years, or never. Uh, it's, it's a really bleak world. Um, but fortunately, you, your this book then I assume was your dissertation originally. Um, yes, it was my the chapter on the um, 1864 scandal was my master's thesis, and then the book was the my dissertation. It, well, it, it, good things come come out of uh, following one's dream at least this far because it's an excellent book, uh, really fascinating topic. Um, 
and I'm going to tease the audience and make them wait for us to start talking about it and first ask you about um, uh, in the acknowledgments, which is always the first thing, listeners, you, you must read in every book. Uh, you had your laptop stolen while you were working on this? I sure did. That was when I was living in Baltimore and I was working at a law firm in the summers to pay my bills. And got it. I had I got an alarm and I ran home and uh, they left a giant knife on my living room sofa that the cops think that they were going to use to stab my dog if she had gotten out of the bedroom. She was. Oh, no. In. But so that kind of brought everything into perspective of, well, I can redo research. I cannot recoup my dog if she had been. In right. Room, so. Right. My dog, Lincoln. Yeah, good name for a dog. I like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so you were you you did manage to restore, recover, or uh, redo the research, and and now we've got uh, uh, now now we've got this this book. You said the the initial topic then came from a master's thesis. Yes, the um, scandal that I talk about in one of the chapters was the master's thesis, and then I expanded out to. Um, the larger employment of women um, in the federal government. That was a dissertation. Well, the uh, that certainly is, is a good tease we can uh, leave our, our listeners with, that there is a uh, salacious scandal at the Treasury Department involving uh, female employees in 1864. But before we do that, we'll find out what, uh, what, what exactly all these women are doing there, what brought them to Washington, uh, who they were, and so on. That is the subject of the book we're discussing tonight. It's called This Grand Experiment, When Women Entered the Federal Workforce in Civil War Era, Washington, D.C., written by Jessica Zapparo, who is our guest tonight. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice of America Variety Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P. O W I C Z G at ECU dot EDU. Now, 
Back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. Excuse me, I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Jessica Zapparo, author of This Grand Experiment, When Women Entered the Federal Workforce in Civil War-era Washington, D.C. So, Jess, I learned from this book that there were essentially no women, or a few dozen maybe, working for the federal government uh, as late as 1859. How, How... segregated was the American workplace uh, before the war in terms of gender? Uh, outside of the federal government? Well, but be, be either way. Um, yeah, so the women that were working for the federal government by 1859, um, the only ones that were showing up on the federal register, which was a book that they would put out every two years that listed the names of everyone that worked for I, I can't say the whole federal government because I found mm-hmm. hundreds of people that weren't on those lists, but some demarcated sections of the government. Um, so it would list their name, where they were from, um, how much they earned, and in what section of the government they worked. Um, so there were only 18 names, uh, and they were all working for the Government Hospital for the Insane, or St. Elizabeth's, as it was also known as. Um, mm. Not listed there were women who worked as, like, um, so they would wash the drapes, or they would polish the banisters. So those women I just don't really have eyes on. It was really... Finding sources, this was a very, this was an interesting book from a process standpoint, because it was mm-hmm. really hard to capture ephemera to find out about these women. Um, and I wish I knew more about women like the sweepers and scrubbers, but those were the only women in 1859 that I know of that were working for the federal government. Oh, sorry, with the exception of some women that were um, taking home copy work, and mm-hmm. that seemed to have been uh, based on individual relationships, but they're not really captured in any kind of like... Uh, regulated sense that I could find in the government records. It's interesting about St. Elizabeth's because I'd been reading about the Civil War for decades and never really paid much attention to it. And um, a couple weeks ago, Dylan Carroll was on the show. His new book is about, it's called Invisible Wounds, about mental uh, illness and psychiatric injuries during the war. And he talks a lot about St. Elizabeth, this, this big federal hospital and, mm. and and now you point out that, that women worked there as well as men, uh, which made it unique in, in the federal government. But let me ask and you... And women were pre- patients there, too. Sorry. And that's right. So it's it's uh, a, a co-educational institution. Uh, you mentioned sources uh, or, the, you know, the difficulty of, of finding uh, information. So the Federal Register is one tool. Where, where else could one look? Where did you seek these people? Um, so that was, yeah, that was a helpful tool to be able to quantify because um, I have a lot of qualitative information and I was really trying to quantify information. Um, and so that was helpful for that just because it was static across every two years. I could kind of compare. Um, there are also employee records and they're housed at College Parks um, National Archives. The challenge with those is that they're not organized by gender um, and they're not organized by year. I, I can't remember, oh. but it's decades that they have that are in there and you just have mm-hmm. to individually, it's alphabetical, well, roughly alphabetical. So you have to just go through. And so I was living in Chicago at the time, even though it's was going to Hopkins. And so I would fly to Maryland and I would frantically <laughs> go through these files and pull anything that was a woman in my time period and I would photocopy it without reading it. And I would just be sweating by the time I left there with reams of paper <laughs> that I would have to go back home and make sense of. Um, and I, I know that there are some gems that I missed in there that I still think about sometimes of like, what did I miss? And I would 
I just kind of randomly statistically assigned like which boxes I would pull to try to capture um, a breath. And then I also would look for individuals. I was really looking for black women. Whenever I had the names of ones, I would always go through those files to see if I could find them. Um, but mm-hmm. I was not very successful with that. Um, and then at nights I would, um, I'm surprised my then boyfriend is now my husband because I was pretty boring at nights. I would go through the census like while we were watching TV and I would just read for um, clerk, like treasury government clerk, whatever it would say, mm-hmm. and then look to see if it was a woman's name. Um, so I captured some women that way, but that was just mind numbingly tedious, but it, it helped me a lot. And then I would search names if I'd found them in the census, but women, um, if they got married, they'd obviously change names. And if they were living with their fathers, their names weren't searchable by last name because it would just come up with the, the man's name, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it was very tedious and to capture it all, I created, um, I wound up with about 3000 women from a combination of all of those things. And I captured them. I created a database in a program called FileMaker mm-hmm. that I could make taggable and searchable. And that's kind of how I took all of this ephemera and quantified it um, into something I could talk about more generally. Wow, it's it just amazing. It, it, when you think of the, the generations before us, I mean, you, you mentioned photocopying things. And today, I think people mostly will scan or, or photograph documents uh, instead of photocopying but you know, a generation before that, they were—I don't know what they were doing. They were taking hand notes and and, and writing these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, so. and, and also newspapers. Sorry, I read a yes, newspaper yes. a day for years. And again, mm-hmm. the problem with capturing women is they weren't always. Um, there were so many of them, and you couldn't—I couldn't search names, so it would just be like a woman in the treasury. But if you were searching "woman in treasury," <laughs> it—you know—you weren't getting. So you had to actually read every single. You put eyes on every single page, um, and I would pull information out from there too. And you point out in the book that women don't want to be mentioned in the newspaper. I think you said when they're when you're married and when you die, those are the only two times a respectable woman's name should appear in the newspaper. Uh, so uh, that that would further limit the ability to track these people down. So what what did what you, one thing you found that you say early in the book is that there were way more applicants than there were jobs. It's not like World War II where where the people are urging women to come out and work. The women are are descending on Washington to get these federal jobs. How did that come about? I wish I knew exactly how that information was disseminated. I was looking at early letters and seeing that people from New Hampshire were asking for the jobs. People were writing to Lincoln before there even were jobs technically mm-hmm. open in the federal government. Um, so once they, those jobs were opened, and a lot of it was just because women had so few options for well-paying, intellectually stimulating work. There just was almost nothing. It was agricultural labor, domestic labor, and factory work. So this kind of brain work was really limited. And even though the government was paying women less than half of the lowest paid male clerk, that was still substantially more money than they could get in almost any other job. Mm -hmm. And so it was the best job in the country for women to get. So I don't exactly know how the information was disseminated, but I'm not surprised that it was disseminated and that it it had a really eager audience of women that were incredibly excited by the opportunity to work for the government. So these women are are coming to Washington and hoping to find jobs. Um, 
they don't uh, this part of, of your book reminded me of, of the difficulty that, that you are familiar with and anyone in academia is familiar with and I remember clearly of trying to find an academic job uh, you apply and apply and apply and, and uh, sometimes it seems like it matters who you know as much as, as what you know uh, I, I gather that that was true for these women that it wasn't their it, 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 they depended on, on others uh, for the yes for the women it was actually detrimental to their cause if they or their recommenders touted touted their abilities or their intelligence um, in the applications that I found the women that were successful were the ones that had really strong recommenders and who had a very um, pathetic in air quotes story to tell about why they so desperately needed the job um, the women that I found that were eminently capable um, incredibly intelligent would have been a great service to the government who only used those qualities that they had or qualifications didn't get the jobs. So it, it didn't really have anything to do with what they know. It was really about who they knew and kind of how in need of paternalistic benevolence they could make themselves seem. So, so what does that mean in terms of being in need? Is this a financial need? Yes. Um, yeah, there was a lot of, and that, makes them differ from women who worked for um who worked as nurses for example so women that worked as nurses during the civil war they really weren't supposed to take money they weren't supposed to talk about money um even though they needed it uh, a lot mm-hmm. of the times they were trying to say oh no i'm doing this for the government i'm doing this i'm sorry i'm doing this for the cause i'm doing this for the soldiers but it was very much i need money um the, the words that they would use were like destitute poverty stricken they were very upfront that they needed the money. That's why they needed these jobs. Now, if a male applicant wrote that, that I would think would not go over as well. I'd say, well, you don't have the right gumption, Sonny. You don't have the, you know, buck up there. Don't tell us how, how poor you are. But, but that did work for women. Right, because men were saying things like, I'm, I would be very good at this job, which really you would think would be a pretty important qualification. Um, and also talking about patronage. So this is what I did for the Republican Party. This is what I did for this candidate. Um, this is what I will do in the future. And women didn't have those options open to them. They could say my father, husband, brother voted for Republican candidates, um, but obviously they didn't have the vote, so they couldn't offer that. Um, and even women that really used their war benevolent work as the thrust for why they should get a job that wasn't very successful either um so the government really hired women one because they could pay them so much less than they paid men to do the exact same job um and two to kind of um to to be in this kind of paternalistic benevolent position to women of taking care of what they said were the widows and orphans of the war, but statistics that I found that actually wasn't the case. Like there were women that were the wives and daughters and sisters of soldiers, but they weren't the majority when I was crunching the numbers of the women that were working for the government. And that could be because the widows and and daughters were working in more manual positions that I just don't have the records for. Um, But about 65% of the women that I found working in clerkships did not have that kind of male um, relationship to a soldier. I found that very interesting because you pointed out that that's one of the ways the government could justify hiring women, engaging in this experimental measure of hiring women was that 
these are the the you know suffering widows and orphans of our our brave soldiers who've given their lives we owe it to them but you you say you said you know 65 percent were not widows and orphans 35 percent were perhaps but uh, that surprised mm-hmm. me I think it would have surprised the greater public, too, because that, that was kind of the the information out there in the newspapers was that, oh, these are the this is why we have to let these women work for the government. But um, that's yeah, that wasn't necessarily the case. And it was really just incredibly enterprising, industrious women who found ways into the federal government, despite not having those qualifications. Although I will say the War Department, that was official policy. You had to be related to a soldier. Mm-hmm. Um other departments tried to institute that, or there was talk of it, but it never happened anywhere other than the War Department. Well, I'm curious about the other departments. What kind of work actually are these women doing? You mentioned uh, uh, it looked like the Treasury Department was was a primary hirer. Yeah, the Treasury Department was a big hirer. So there were women, and I kind of talk about this in the book. It's a little bit hard to figure out because in the federal register in the federal register for example mm-hmm. there will be job descriptions with men's name under under that and then it will just say ladies <laughs> it will list women <laughs> so it, it's not exactly clear and the jobs of clerks were pretty undifferentiated at this point so you know men especially so it would be you're copying a letter and then you're figuring out some figures and then you're drafting a letter um so there weren't really clear cut um you know, this is your job. But when women came in, um, they came in as cutters, trimmers of the currency. So like cutting the paper that the currency would be printed on. Um, and then they really excelled it in the treasury at counting currency and, um, counterfeit detecting and redeeming currency. So currency that had been like burned or was buried out in the backyard or that had sunk to the bottom of the sea. And so women became incredibly adept, partially because they had carved off these, um, these parts of jobs that men had been doing and exclusively gave them to women. And that's all women did. And so they got incredibly practiced at these things. Um, so those were some of the jobs they did in the treasury, but then they also helped with like printing kind of like they did at the government printing office. Um, in the, in the post office, they were working in the dead letter office. So that was redirecting mail that had come in. So it would just be addressed to like Bob in Indiana and they would have to figure out how to get it to Bob. Actually, my favorite one was Carlton in America. Um, and so they would have to figure out how to get it or there would be items that had been delivered and they'd have to figure out where they'd go and how they would get there. Um, and so women did that, although they weren't allowed to open the mail because God forbid something salacious was in the mail. So men would just do the mechanical job of opening it and then women would have to do the intellectual job of redirecting it um, and get paid half for the privilege of that. Um, and in the war department and the patent office, it was mainly copying. So that was just, you know, copying. Um, but also there was comparing copies to like quality control. So they did some of that as well. Um, and the government hospital for the insane, it was taking care of patients and cleaning and cooking. And and there was also that kind of labor in other departments too, the, the domestic manual labor. Well, I was very interested to find out what, what was being done, what these, these clerks, as you say, that's an all-purpose word, what they're doing. Um, and the fact that the, the greenbacks being introduced during the war were generated so many employment opportunities to, uh, to cut the sheets of them apart was one thing, and then to, uh, to do the forensic work when you get, like you described, a, a wad of cash that's been buried or 
blown up with the soldiers and, and, and figure out exactly what bills are in there so the government can can, can make that good. Um, there's a lot of very interesting uh, things to do, not just copying things over by hand, which mm-hmm. doesn't sound quite so exciting. Um, now, one of the things you talk about is what a is living in, in Washington and, and going back to Margaret Leach's book, uh, Reveling in Washington, which is you know 70 years old maybe by now, but it was a mm-hmm. standard back back in the day. And uh, from from that time on, I've always just thought of Washington D.C. during the Civil War as a giant open sewer, a cesspool of mm-hmm. filth and degradation. <laughs> Uh, mm-hmm. and, and your book did not redeem it. Uh, it sounds it sounded pretty nasty. It did, although rereading it for for this um, talk, mm-hmm. it also it also made me just so excited for the women that got to live there. Which I know sounds like a contradiction, but mm-hmm. you have women like Wilbur, who is one of the women that left a diary that I'm able to use, um, and this other woman, Ann Dudley, and. It just is so exciting to be there because here's this place where the most important people in the nation are living at the most important time. You know, the war is almost the front lines. But then they have all these incredibly exciting um, speakers that they get to see and they get to sit in Congress and listen to what's happening. And they are copying those speeches and disseminating them to the rest of the world. So they were like kind of at the front lines, not only of the war, but of the forging of this new coherent nation. Um, in a way that they wouldn't have had the privilege to be in any other city. And they also had the freedom so, to be there. So even though things are, are not the cleanest, it's it's like, uh, and listeners of a certain age will remember the opening of the Mary Tyler Moore show when she would throw her hat in the air to be young and single in Minneapolis. Uh, they must have felt a little bit of that. Uh, listeners, we will hold you on tenterhooks one more section and talk about the treasury scandal of 1864 when we return we're talking tonight with jessica zapparo author of this grand experiment when women entered the federal workforce in civil war era washington dc i'm jerry prokopovich this is civil war talk radio Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. 
Want to see what Voice America is up to behind the scenes? Follow us on TikTok at Voice America Talk Radio. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Jessica Zaparo, author of This Grand Experiment, When Women Entered the Federal Workforce in Civil War-Era Washington, D.C., uh, so, Jess, the, the project started, you said, with a master's thesis on the Treasury scandal of 1864. Uh, tell us what that was. Sure. And I, I got there because my, my interest in history has always been, I mean, since I was honestly in elementary school, I've always been interested in how women have been able to carve out places of independence for themselves um, in a society that's just not meant for them to do that. Um, and so... I was most, I started out being interested in um, sex workers during the Civil War. And in some of that early research, that led me to the Treasury Department, which I was like, I did not expect to arrive at the Treasury Department in my research on sex workers during the Civil War. So this scandal happened because we moved, as you mentioned earlier, we moved to, um, to the Greenbacks during the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And that caused a lot of anxiety nationally about having a currency that was not tied, it was just tied to kind of the integrity of the nation. And they, people were very worried about counterfeits um, because now you have this national currency. Previously it was every state kind of had, every bank had its own currency. Um, And now you had this national currency. So people were very worried about counterfeiters. So Chase hired this guy Clark to run his, run that department, the printing department. um, And he hired this guy Gwyn, G-W-Y-N-N, and there were a lot of allegations about what Clark and Gwynn were doing and that it was fraudulent. He had this membrane paper that people thought was kind of quackery. And so Chase hired this investigator, Lafayette Baker, who I could talk forever about him, um, uh-huh. to investigate the Treasury Department. And so Baker thought, well, Gwynn is defrauding the United States. And so he wanted to arrest him. And Gwynn sued Baker. And Baker went to the Treasury and said, are you going to back me up? And they said, no. And so he said, all right, well, then I'm going to expose all of this stuff that I found. And a lot of the stuff that he found was that Clark and some other male supervisors were having sexual relations with the teenage, some of the teenage girls working in the Treasury Department. Um, And a Democrat, Brooks, in New York, got a hold of this. And the upshot was a 418-page congressional report about fraud in the in the um, Treasury Department, but mainly about women and sexual impropriety in the Treasury Department. And it just cast a pall over all of the women that worked for the, the Treasury, federal government, mainly the Treasury, um, for decades. So women, like Treasury clerk was a slur you would use against women because of this scandal, which when you actually look at it, like that's not at all what it started. That's not why it started. <laughs> and um and these teenage girls just really caught all of the blame for it. And, yeah, it's a frustrating scandal to, to look into. It, it really, uh, it, it, obviously, the, the connection to politics uh, that 
politicians are using uh, these allegations against each other and uh, young and uh, presumably you know, politically unpowerful women are getting caught up in this and, and uh, uh, it has consequences for everybody though because as you say the, the vast majority of the workers in the Treasury Department are not engaging in any impropriety uh, male or female and yet you know to call someone a treasury girl becomes an insult uh, the this couldn't have helped uh, with the title of your book this grand experiment uh, this must have made it difficult to to argue to continue to hire women it did and it um it also complicated the fight for equal pay um, mm-hmm. that happens in the late 1860s and early 1870s. Although I will say you, you said it made it complicated for everyone. It didn't. Mostly the men got away scot-free. Ah. So Clark um, Clark is actually the reason why you can't have living people on currency because this scandal happened in 1864. And in 1866, he put his own face on the five-cent fractional currency. And <laughs> Congress was like, absolutely not. And then passed a law, you can't have living people. So he was just fine. Um, but you know, this poor, um, one of the poor girls that I started the chapter with was publicly autopsied, um, to see if she had had an abortion, which she hadn't. Um, so yeah, it wasn't everyone, but it really did complicate the lives of women working for the federal government. And it came up again in the debates in the Senate and in Congress about whether or not women should be paid equally for equal work. Well, that, that's the last chapter of book of your book. You talk about that that you've got a majority in Congress who supports the idea. Yep. Uh, you know, by a parallel, you've seen the fight for equal pay for the, the USCT. The the uh, the African American soldiers got equal pay eventually by the end of the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And here's a majority that why. So how come how come it didn't pass? I wish I knew. The people that were involved in it didn't know. The congressmen and senators kept saying, "We don't know why this happened." It was so it was so um, universally understood that this had passed that at one point um, they in the Treasury, uh, an appropriation had been made to pay women equally to men. And the auditor came and said, "Um, I have enough money to pay women equally. Right. Because Congress granted. And they said, no, we're not doing that and went through and it had fallen out in committee just trying to, like, tweak the language of it. And it happened four times Ugh. and it just kept falling out. And they, they would come back and say, I don't know why we've already talked about this. Like we've already decided women should be paid equally. Why are we talking about it again? And then they would talk about it again. And then in 1870 is when, so this happened in 1867 to 1871, 1870, mm-hmm. um, or sorry, 1865 to 1870. And in 1870, they did pass something that said, okay, we can, sorry, I should back up. Women were paid <laughs> at 1865, 1864 appropriations act. Women were paid $600 for the same job as men and men were paid 12 to $1,800. They raised it to 720 in 1865 and 900 in 1866. The problem with that was not only that women were getting paid far less than men, but the salary was totally flat, right? So mm-hmm. the best paid women got paid the same as the I mean, sorry, the, the hardest working best employees were paid the same as the least producing employees. So there was no, it was a flat horizontal pay scale. There was no incentive for women to work harder. Um, and so in 1870, they said, okay, you can not have to can appoint women to these graded federal clerkships. So you start to get paid 12, 14. The problem was 
they didn't do it because they didn't they didn't get more money. Right. So everyone's always strapped for money. And so suddenly they're saying, well, why do we have to do this if women are going to be here and working for less money? You did have some like a small flurry of appointments to women to those graded classes of clerkships in 1871. Mm -hmm. And actually, uh, Edwin Stanton wrote a thank you for promoting this one woman because she had been working there for a while and she absolutely deserved that. He said, I hope this works its way through the rest of the departments like Congress intended, and it just didn't. And women's Mm -hmm. salaries really remain stagnant. Um, And it's incredibly frustrating. (laughs) Very frustrating. Uh, It is to read it. Um, Now, these women are working after the war, which brings up a a question that when I first started reading the book and and got the sense of what this is about, my assumption was that it would be the same as World War II. After the war, all the men are coming home, so in World War II, the women are urged to go back to the homes and leave the riveting jobs for, for men. Uh, but you report otherwise. The, there were actually more women working after the war than during the war. Yep, and, and that was all cost savings. Um, well, hmm. not all cost savings women were making valuable contributions to the government and supervisors did recognize that. But a lot of it was because they could pay women half for doing all of the work. Um, so what I do think is interesting though, and that really only came from a very granular look is that it looks like, Oh, look, women got these jobs and stayed there, right? Like mm-hmm. job security. But when you really dig into the data, it's actually, there's incredible volatility within the departments. Mm-hmm. So yes, women as a category stayed there, but individual women were constantly moving in and out and desperate to retain these jobs. Because like I said, they were by far the best jobs that you could get in, in the entire nation. And they were supporting families on them, um, even though it was less than half of what men were making. So you have men like Walt Whitman saying, petitioning the government saying, we can't live on these government salaries and his boarding house mate, who was a female clerk and earning half of what, less than half of what he made, was also petitioning the government saying, yeah, we can't <laughs> live on less than half of what these guys are saying that they can't live on. Um, so, yeah, it was, they did not leave when the, part of it was because there was a backlog of bureaucratic labor, right, after, mm-hmm. um, after the war ended. But also partially because, as we know, the federal bureaucracy just continued to grow past the Civil War. So the government never shrank. So women never, the role of women never shrank within it either. So to ask a question that I've asked students at the, uh, on a final exam. Uh, oh, no comps. <laughs> well, it, it it's an opinion question. It, it, the Civil War, you know, has been pictured by some, like James McPherson's the Second American Revolution. Uh, how revolutionary is the change in women's situations? At, specifically, the group you looked at, the, the women who work in, in Washington. Is, is this a revolutionary change? Is it an incremental change? Is it a flash in the pan and we're back to cult of domesticity again how, how do you evaluate this i evaluate it as a it was not a flash in the pan right women never left mm-hmm. the federal government and from here they moved into um white collar jobs like across the country um mm-hmm. but it, it was not as much as it should have been it was not as great of a change as it should have been and i think it's really interesting to look at and i talk about this the sort of relationship between the suffrage movement and mm-hmm. these women um, the suffrage movement was really eye on the prize. We are going to get the vote and that will get you equal pay. 
and these women who were incredibly scared of losing their jobs um, needed more money, but were scared of going a bridge too far and advocating for the suffrage movement. And so in the end, they both kind of failed. And so it wasn't um, a flash in the pan and it wasn't this great revolution, mm-hmm. but it, it was a point that it could have been. And it was instead sort of a spark that started a, a fire, I think. But I, I think it does um, it does instruct us to really think about the responsibility we have as privileged people to mm-hmm. fight for those who don't have as much privilege and who are being oppressed. So the fact that these women failed to achieve equal pay but came so close, I looked at them and how how tenuously they were holding on to their jobs and how if they lost them they had nowhere else to go and yet they still fought for equal pay and just thinking about how if people if i mean at this point it was white men that were the privileged class if they had really come to the defense of these women and really tried to shepherd these bills through there could have been potentially a greater movement or if perhaps the suffrage movement had teamed up with them and helped kind of shepherd those bills through the process of like actually getting passed and into law maybe that could have worked but I just see it as like too often, especially in our country and in our history, we expect the oppressed to kind of pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And like these women weren't even allowed to wear boots, you know, mm-hmm. and we're expecting them to do that. And it's absurd. And so looking at today, like categories of people that are being oppressed or who don't have privileges, it's beholden to those of us who do to to see those um, discriminate, to see the discrimination that people are experiencing and help them extricate themselves from it because it's not um something that's necessarily possible when you're in that position um because i i it's crazy reading through the congressional reports and the reports of treasurers um to congress how how much these women contributed to the government Mm -hmm. i mean at one point spinner actually says like we could not have persecuted this war without underpaying women he just says it in one of his Mm -hmm. reports and yet we continue to do it, which is maddening. It, I mean, it is. And, and one of the, the great virtues of the book is how how easily one can you know, associate it with, with contemporary events and, and see the relevance of, of history as, as if there were ever any question of the relevance of history. Uh, I would like to talk about this another 45 minutes to three hours, but unfortunately <laughs> we are out of time. Uh, so, uh, listeners, to get the full benefit, get yourself a copy of This Grand Experiment, When Women Entered the Federal Workforce in Civil War-Era Washington. Uh, it's by Jessica Zapparo, who's been our guest tonight. Jess, thank you for being on Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for having me. It was fun. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.